Hello, this is Melissa. It's Real History, and today is Thursday, June the 15th. And I am talking today with David from Ontario, Canada. Hi, David. Hi, Melissa. How are you? I'm great. How are you? We had a little rocky start here. (laughs) Hilarious. Ghosts in the machine and all that. Yeah, it happens. So just now, before we launch into things, I mentioned that I could hear the birds in the background, and you said that, yes, you could hear them through your studio. So where are you located? We're just south of Georgian Bay in a valley. So we're on the Niagara Escarpment. Mm. And so it's a UNESCO, you know, protected biosphere, which, as we know, is a double-edged sword. So we, in any case, we have, we've got a lot of birds and foxes and raccoons and deer and coyote and mink and pretty much anything you can name that is in this region we have. How does that affect you living in the biosphere? Are there some rules and regulations that you contend with? or It's almost, well, it is occasionally comedic and frustrating. We've built a bunch of little buildings on our property, uh, a sauna, which for people that don't know any Finnish people is the correct pronunciation of sauna. <laughs> it's sauna. Um, I learned that. that years ago from someone. They, I said sauna and they said, it's a sauna. <laughs> yeah, very important. Yeah. And we've built a little guest bunky and both of them, you know, have to be to not have a permit, you know, you have to do it, I think it's 10 by 10 or something is the ultimate square footage you can do. And then you have to build it on on supports off the ground. So in like um, sonar tubes or something like that. Yeah, it can be difficult to do many things. Like we can't dig a well, even though we've got, you know, two acres. And the water that is in our watershed here, um, when tested, is still, you know, the springs are some of the uh, the best water you can get, really. But you're not allowed to drink it. No, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. We have to get the uh, chlorinated town water pumped in way up our driveway, and uh, and then we have to uh, do all the filtering that we, we do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Does UNESCO or some uh, government body come around and inspect you on a fairly regular basis? No, I mean... It's not it's not at that level, but I mean, there's tons of bylaws in building and all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. But um, we've never interfaced directly with any agency. And one thing is, that's nice being in the valley is um, we're not surrounded by farms. We moved here about ten years ago from this little town that I grew up in from about the age of twelve and went to high school, and it was surrounded by mega farms on all sides. You know, if anyone knows anything about uh, glyphosate and other various things they spray on everything, it felt pretty uh, hazardous, you know? Mm-hmm. It's nice to be down here, but of course, there's always something like this is an apple growing region and they spray the apples like crazy. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, you know, we have friends that live not far away on this beautiful farm and but there's an apple orchard on one or two sides of their farm i think they're surrounded by them too and they get warnings 
to shut their windows and keep everybody inside. And they've got little kids and uh, little children, and they get a warning, I think, like the day before, to close your windows and stay inside because we're going to be spraying. And then I suppose magically a few hours later it's all okay and you can come out. <laughs> right, right. I'll just give a little bit of background here real quick. David is an artist, a painter, a really good painter and has made his living that way for a number of years and he is married to Sarah who made her living as a photographer for a long time and she has switched gears in the last couple of years and studied herbal medicine and has begun making a lot of different wonderful sounding herbal remedies for this, that, and the other, and I'm about to try one out for sleep problems. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they have three children. Did I get the, the overall lay of the land there? Yeah, pretty much. The children are in a forest school, which is an incredible concept that, as far as I know, didn't exist when I was a child. And so it's they spend as much time as they possibly can outside. Oh, neat. Learning, you know, all the standard subjects, but with a, a natural bent applied. Mm-hmm. You know, so they'll, they'll do things like trail building or shelter building or studying, um, you know, salmon when they, uh, when they spawn or, you know, applied science when, when the leaves change or whatever it might be. So it's pretty incredible. It's like a private uh, private school, and we've got some help with a bursary and stuff. And um, so we feel really, really lucky to have them in that. Uh, oh, that's great. Yeah, my son's 11, and he's, he's learning leadership, you know. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't think of a, a public school that, uh, that teaches leadership. No, in fact, the little boys are supposed to have that drummed out of them. Apparently so. Yeah. You know, I just I just happened to, honestly, happen to have Bertrand Russell's 1951 book, I think it's 51, mm-hmm. The Impact of Science on Society, literally open in front of me and something that I underli- that I underlined uh, like years ago. If I if I may, in you the, may. And I, I have to say that this is completely spontaneous. We did not absolutely. discuss. <laughs> we did not. This is <laughs> I mean, I had these books here because I thought, you know, in our discussion, you know, maybe we'd we'd talk about certain things, but this is just one of those crazy couple of pages in this book that... Oh, read it, please, yes. I first heard Alan read this probably 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, Ficht, Fichte, I guess that was, uh, I don't know the guy's first name. Anyways, okay. It is to be expected that advances in physiology and psychology will give governments more control over individual mentality than they now have, even in totalitarian countries. Ficht laid it down that education should aim at destroying free will so that after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Well, no wonder he was a a hero, right? You know, no wonder Fichte was a hero. He was um, 
German, and he lived in the 1700s, and I am going to look him up right now here. This is very interesting here. Now, I just learned this this second. It said Fichte was also the originator of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, an idea that is often erroneously attributed to Hegel. Hegel. Isn't that funny? Yeah. So Hegel must have come later then and and um, played on that, I guess. With yes. The that is an interesting little nugget there that we just learned. But, yeah, so that is the purpose of education. And you and your wife decided right from the very beginning that you were going to do things differently. And you're pleased so far. Yeah. And in large part, I have to say, I mean, not solely due to Alan, but we read... John Taylor Gatto a lot, which was another person that Alan had talked about years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, when we educated ourselves a little bit, we both agreed that uh, there was just no way that we would um, repeat what had been done to us in the public school system. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're 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 trucking along, and luckily we have amazing children. They're eager and creative and you know, bright and full of energy and um, are great at at self-directing and um, exploring their interests, and we just support them in that, you know. And, of course, we do math and and English and uh, and all this stuff, but now they're, the forest school is, is great, too. They're really rounding things out and exposing them to things that, honestly... You know, we don't really have tons of time to. I mean, we do. We live basically in nature. We're in a tiny little town, but we're off the main street, and we've got two acres that back up into acres and acres and acres of amazing hiking. And uh, so they've always spent a lot of time outside. So it's a kind of a a great meeting of the two things. It's a bit idyllic. Um, before you landed there, I, I just have had the opportunity to be getting to know you, although I have read a few of your emails over the years, and so I've watched you go through some things like, well, even having the children to start with, but for a while, you and your wife ran a cafe, and you were doing some interesting things there. You. I'd love it if you just really quickly talk on the potato farming and the cafe and like your documentary night. <laughs> yeah, it was a relatively short-lived experiment in a in a co-op. There were eight of us that ran it together, and it was funded by by somebody somebody else who had moved to town and agreed to fund it. And we did we did pretty well. I mean, we always said if every day was as busy as a Saturday and Sunday brunch, we would have been off to the races. But then, you know, Monday through Thursday just slayed us. Mm-hmm. Uh, just not enough traffic. Um, mm-hmm. But in any case, it, it was a great little time in our lives for a while. And, yeah, we had a lot of local produce and music nights that I would cook like a limited bistro style menu for uh, those were amazing nights and then yeah i started doing documentary film nights but that was that was kind of short-lived because a lot of people came to those evenings i think wanting to hear their own 
pre-decided upon conclusions, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And I also came up against some pretty serious kind of new age thinking where I'd show a hard-hitting documentary about something that, let's say, the disappearing male. You know, some of them mm-hmm. were, were things that Alan had recommended years ago, too. Afterwards, there'd be this kind of almost invariably like a, well, it's so negative. <laughs> you know, we need to hear, you know, positive things. And, uh, you know, you can't just focus on the negative. And, you know, my position has always been like I'm a almost at a hopeful anonymous meeting, sort of like, hi, my name is David. I'm a <laughs> I'm a short term <laughs> Short-term pessimist, long-term optimist. (laughs) I've just... The logic is apparent to me that you need to know how bad things are. You need the lay of the land before you can properly respond with a positive solution, you know what I mean? Uh And so, yeah, I fully admit that they were... It wasn't like come and leave with a happy feeling night, you know? It was come and challenge your perceptions and uh, take a peek into, you know, how the world really works a little bit. And so, yeah, that was a little frustrating. Well, I, it's it's fu- it's funny there, too, because what you're, we laugh at about people who are woke and need, you know, the youngsters who need their safe spaces at the university or something triggers them. But what you're talking about is adults who have a very similar attitude, you know, oh, they've got to create a safe space in their mind. And the new age is perfect for that. Yeah. And, you know, some of these were like retired adults. Ugh. So they, they were getting woke before woke broke. <laughs> yeah. But that's been pretty pretty obvious for a long time that you know cognitive dissonance rules right yes people don't really want to switch up their thinking too seriously and i mean as alan used to say often if they really took in this information thinking of themselves as moral people with ideas or ideals rather they would have to change something yes and uh that's that's pretty daunting to, to yeah. walk it, you talk it, is, uh, is a, a big challenge. It is true. I mean, he said that, and I, I know you'll remember this in the, the cutting through books, but he's got that place where it's sucker your it-y, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that, is, that is it, is that when you really are able to face what is going on, then what then what you're faced with is yourself in the mirror you're you're it you yeah. are your own champion there is no one who's coming to the rescue there's <laughs> not a a great awakening where everybody is going to say aha now we understand what's going on and i, I was, regularly hear from people who say oh yeah but a lot more people are waking up because of the last 3 years and, da, da, da. and alan would say that's not waking up that's that's reacting mhm yeah, and I, th- I think to a degree, some of that is happening, mm-hmm. but I would say to a limited degree. My wife and I, you know, differ on this slightly. You know, um, she's much more, let's say, positively inclined. 
It's a female characteristic, too. Yeah, and I, she does not in any way at all deny the the darkest aspects of this agenda that we're living through. But she chooses consciously for her own sort of ability to get up and get at it in the day just to to more focus on the hopeful aspects that there are, you know, a ton of, let's say, you know, just for example, in the last few years, doctors and scientists who have risked everything to speak what they see as truth, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I can't deny that that is a positive development. And I don't like to think of myself as, you know, overly focused on the negative. But, like I said, long-term optimist, short-term pessimist. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Well, I I, I should mention here, too, for listeners, that this talk, I believe it it has a dual function. Because it can be one of those sounds of nature recordings You've got the birds going on here, and I have a very loud thunderstorm in the background, which is going to come through. So. We just need some whale song. Yeah, it'll be the unlikely combination of birds chirping away against a thunderstorm. <laughs> um, it's, I, I was just thinking earlier today, just thinking of bird song, how much less there is now. Yes. I remember when I was a teenager, uh, you know, some after some particularly wild field party, trying to get some sleep on a Sunday morning, and the birds were literally, I mean, not deafening, but uh, like a true cacophony. It's just not to that degree anymore. And, um, you know, lots of people would probably say, oh, well, climate change, but... Uh, I just look up at the skies being sprayed every day and think that's a more likely culprit for many things that we're we're seeing as decline in the natural world. Mm-hmm. Sad. One one amazing thing though, there's a pond in the the property next to us, and in the spring, the um, what they call peepers, mm-hmm. tiny frogs. That that is an amazing cacophony. It's you know I fall asleep to that every night in the spring. I've got uh, pretty severe tinnitus from stupidly shooting a uh, hunting rifle in high school. Uh. And so I'm really thankful for those sounds of nature that with the windows open, I can just focus on that sort of, you know. I was thinking that it might have been from your music days. Well, those those are still going, and uh, I guess at this point, yeah, I don't know how much more damage I could do to my ears than I did then. Since we just mentioned the music, you've sent me some great songs that you've recorded in the last two or three years. And there's some that from the last three years, you call it your angry period. <laughs> the <laughs> the angry songs.
Yeah, I, uh, I'm lucky enough to have a friend who's a music producer and is a true musical genius and prodigy and who happens to really like my art. And so as gifts to his wife, he, he gets paintings and he comes up to my studio here and we record kind of guerrilla fashion for like 10 days or something at a time. And so we've done that twice now, and it's uh, it's pretty amazing. But yeah, the the songs that are on the YouTube channel I sent you are very, very much a reaction to to the lockdown and to what was going on. And they're they're not subtle lyrically, you know. Mm-hmm. They're um, dare I say like verging on, if not totally engaging in sloganeering, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, which. Well, Go ahead. No, well, I mean, which sometimes I, as an artist or as a writer, I, I you know, I detest and I see it as propaganda. But it's somebody called it <laughs> counter counter revolutionary music. So I, I kind of thought, well, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> if the revolution is what is happening now, then I suppose I'm counter. Yeah. Well, I I'll, we'll plug some of those in, and you you sent also one that's the pre-mixed, pre the producer, and I I quite like that one too. So we'll highlight a, a little bit of that. yourself apart when the crowd moves in one direction is it a dream that you could stand your ground 
backwards and it's upside down You summon all the strength you found When the crowd moves in one direction You know it's hurt behavior It's hurt behavior It's hurt behavior When the masses move Can you stand still when the masses move Just wait and see where they're moving to It's not likely that it's somewhere new When the crowd moves in one direction You know it's hurt behavior It's hurt behavior It's hurt behavior When the masses move Maybe at this moment you can take just a few minutes to talk about the what you were involved in when you were a little bit younger, the, the Drawn Onward group. Oh, yeah. It was uh, kind of a surreal, wonderful happenstance that happened to me and a bunch of friends. We We were in art school together. We were at the Ontario College of Art together. We lived together in various different, um, what's the word, concatenations, is that the word? Anyways, and then about a year after we were all graduated, a couple of the guys started doing plein air painting, Mm -hmm. um, which is just going out into nature and painting what Mm -hmm. you see. We happened to get some funding offered to us from Scotia Capital Markets, the Bank of Nova Scotia's investment wing, and so they could write off funding the arts. We just hit it so lucky, and we had a couple trips um, funded, and we put on some shows, and it really took off. And so from about 96 till maybe 2010 or 12, we were working together and traveling. Together, we pooled our, our own money and bought a school bus and um, renovated it, painted it green, and put our logo drawn onward on it, and did some incredible trips across Canada. A friend of ours was a filmmaker, and he came along with his brother, who was doing sound for him, on our trip to Newfoundland, which was an amazing, amazing experience. We got some quite a bit of media attention for a while, you know, newspapers, magazines, radio, TV, and um, this documentary, I think, occasionally is still played on Canadian television. And we'd, we'd hear from young art students that their art teacher had played it in their class and it had inspired them. And so, yeah, we really, we really had a truly fortunate ride for a while. Yeah, it was amazing. What were some of the educational highlights, you know, the things that you learned from this experience, which lasted actually 
quite a few years. I didn't realize it was such a long period of your life. Yeah, I mean, it waned when we all had children and stopped going on, you know, month or two month long trips into the mm -hmm. bush. To, but we had some incredible experiences, like uh, snowshoeing into a remote cabin up near Sault Ste. Marie and spending a month in this tiny cabin in the winter and painting every day and just having about as good a time as, uh, you know, young men in their 20s can have in the woods. <laughs> But one of the most amazing – well, the trip to Newfoundland was, was uh, pretty revelatory in a, in a bunch of different ways. Spending some time in, in um, a culture – I don't know if you know much about Newfoundland, but it's a really, really wonderful island. I and don't know. There's, there's something about the, the isolation of being on an island – that has bred this intense friendliness <laughs> in mm -hmm. They're the most hospitable people on the planet. We just had some hilarious times there. I'd say that probably the most profound experience for a lot of us was spending a lot of time in the Arctic. Mm. Uh, yeah. In the Inuit communities and um, making some friends up there some long-lasting relationships there. You know, anybody who knows anything about what happened to First Nations people and culture over the past several hundred years in North America, it's hard to describe the, the duality of life up there, you know. The cultural genocide was nearly, I have to say, complete and, and in my opinion, ongoing. So there's a lot of sadness, but again, like Newfoundlanders, the, the Inuit are amazingly hospitable for the most part, just incredibly friendly and welcoming and uh, hilarious, love to laugh. And so it's it was amazing to see people living wonderful lives in spite and despite of what what has happened to their culture. Do you, I don't know um, really anything about them, but I'm curious. A question comes to mind. You said that they're living wonderful lives despite what's happened. Have well, that, they... that, not, uh, not on mass, I wouldn't say. There's, there's a lot of poverty and misery and drug abuse and, okay. and uh, familial abuse and alcoholism and the problems that that were foisted upon them, uh, there are no magical solutions to when, in my opinion, at least, you know, when, when a culture's, the carpet is ripped out from under their feet again and again and again, it's tragic. Uh, but when I say that, you know, people living great lives, there are, there are people who are, you know, transcending and trying to improve and, and uplift the youth you know, I think the youth suicide rate in the Arctic regions, and probably not just in Canada, are among the highest in the world, if not the highest in the world. Really? So, you know, every family that you would meet or pretty much anybody you would talk to up there, uh, you know, they've had family members uh, who have committed suicide and, and largely very young 
uh, teenagers. So when I say duality, you know, it's uh, it is a profound duality. And uh, so lots to learn for for the happy-go-lucky uh, Western landscape painter just you know going up there and being thrown into a a world that we didn't know much about and uh, being well, welcomed. It's interesting. We we can touch just a little bit on your family background, but what it makes me think when you're talking about this is the kind of attack and trauma that they've intentionally done on indigenous people or tribal people. And by tribal people, I'll extend it out to Scots, uh, Ireland, sure. you know, that it's not, it isn't just First Nations people in North America. There's a, a and damage that you can see in Africa, etc. Yep. But you, as a, what you'd call a Westerner there in Canada and myself, we've grown up in a more, the kind of the melting pot idea. You have a lot of different heritage in your family line as do I but yep. what that does is it removes us a step or two from a sense of real tribe yeah absolutely and and um, the difference in the family unit on average is is really apparent you know I often think about uh, you know I have a cousin living in India and uh Generations still live together, you know. Mm-hmm. They take they take care of their parents and their grandparents, and yeah, boy, have we ever lost that here, eh? I see the worst of us and I feel nothing. I'm on the team and I'll play my part. I'm going forward with another direction now. I'll make it through with my artificial heart. My artificial heart. really have you know it's it, it is a sad thing obviously every canadian and every american just like the people who would say oh i'm just a westerner from whatever country you name in europe uh we we're all suffering you can look in any country at the the drug abuse um the homelessness yep. because it's an all-out attack On but what yeah, yeah what really where the pain is just palpable is with places like what you're describing this tribal where the tribe was everything and i i find similar things amongst say the highlanders in scotland i've never been there but i communicate with people who still live there and what they're what you're what it is is this intergenerational open sore you know it's a wound that never heals yeah yeah I, we, as a group, drawn onward, the the artists, we got the chance to uh, spend a couple weeks in the Highlands of Scotland painting. Mm. 
you know, the the landscapes are dotted with these abandoned crofts. Mm-hmm. Um, that Croft are, is a small farm holding. That little, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just side note. I, I as you know, I, I sent Alan one of the paintings I did in Scotland, and yes, he uh, he said it reminded him of his childhood. Yeah, after the Highland clearances, and I fully agree. It's the it's the same kind of war, you know, on um, culture and tradition, and um, you know the uh, forcing into sameness or orthodoxy, you know. So yeah, that was that was another. I hadn't had I kind of forgot about that, but that was another profound sort of learning experience, learning about the clearances and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, something I'm sure Alan knew a lot about. Yes. Well, you have an interesting family background, too, in that um, your mother was Finnish, and that's why you know how to say sauna. <laughs> <laughs> sauna, yeah. Sauna. Yeah, I'm half Finnish. Ah. And was there when I was seven and remember it very fondly. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, the family unit when I was there was seemed to be pretty strong, like, I remember a, I was seven years old, and there was this uh, midsummer night bonfire that they would do. They would build a huge fire on a raft and float it out into the middle of the lake. And, of course, because you're up north in the summer, you know, you can be awake at, you know, one or two in the morning, and it's like just the beginning of a sunset, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that seemed really magical, just these families gathering, and there were so many cousins, and... All the generations saunaing together, grandmothers, grandfathers, and parents and grandchildren, like three generations, you know, in this huge sauna together, you know, all naked, <laughs> like so, so down to earth, and everybody jumping in the lake and drinking a cold beer and, and having some salty sausage with mustard afterwards, sauna makara. <laughs> oh. The sausage. So, yeah, that's that's why I, 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 as soon as we moved to where we could build one, uh, it was a dream of mine to build our own sauna. So, mm-hmm. we don't have a pond; we just dump buckets over our heads. But um, it's an amazing thing, and I have to say, through through the the lockdown, I was sounding like three nights a week and just sweating it out. And uh, it's a great place to uh, be alone with your thoughts you know, incredibly healthy as well. So so that's definitely a gift from my from my Finnish side. Oh, that sounds so nice. It is, yeah. yeah. And it's a place where, you know, we go out there, my wife and I and the three kids, there's no electricity, you know, it's like a few hundred feet from the house and we're just in there together sweating and talking and uh, it's like some of the best just family time you can get, you know, mm-hmm. very old fashioned, which I'll take. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I, uh, then on your father's side, which get this in really quickly because your mother sounded so interesting to me. Um, a, an amazing cook, a real, yeah. Yeah. Community presence. Kind of, you said she had this just mothering uh, quality. Everybody loved her. Yep. Yep. She would listen like nobody else. That's what everybody remembered that she would 
give you her, her whole attention. And uh, all my friends loved her. You know, when I run into people that knew her, it's still such a warm feeling that that they have about her and reminiscing about her. And uh, yeah, that's nice. Yeah. And and then your father actually had also had an interesting background. Um, was a quite a good musician. Hmm. Yeah, he um, was born in the Bronx. My grandfather was was Jewish, uh, not religious. He was and, few, and had had come over from Russia. His parents came over. Oh, from, his parents. Okay. Yeah. All right. So my my father's grandparents. Okay. Came over from Russia in the late 1800s, uh, having you know run away from the pogroms, and so yeah, my father didn't grow up even remotely religious. They were, I guess, what you'd call cultural, culturally Jewish. But my grandmother on my dad's side was uh, Pennsylvania Deutsch, so not Jew- not Jewish at all. <laughs> But she she made the best gefilte fish, as I always say. And so then they moved to Boston and then to Montreal, where he went to high school, and then finally to Toronto. Yeah, he had an interesting life. He was in in business, but had wanted to be in music. Like, when he was 22, he hitchhiked to New York City with his guitar and ended up living with musicians who were in a band called the Mugwumps who later went on to be the Mamas and the Papas and mm-hmm. Love and Spoonful. Neat. You know, he had a... He knew Mama Cass and Zolianovsky from the Love and Spoonful taught him a lot of guitar. And he lived... In, he just slept on their couch one summer in New York City and went to all the folk clubs and, you know, just had some amazing experiences, I guess. And then came back to... Toronto uh, and went to um, university where he met my mom and then I think it was really driven into him that he needed to make money because my my grandfather um, was a salesman I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Tin Men uh, the Barry Levinson movie Tin Men Yes, I have. Years ago, when it was first out. Yeah, so my my dad basically described my grandfather and his uncles um, as, you know, the Tin Man guys. Like, they would sell aluminum siding or whatever it was, and some of them even ran um, scams approximating the, the famous Time magazine scam. I don't um, know about that. Yeah, where they would come and say... Uh, you know, Time Magazine wants to do, and they'll feature your house as a <laughs> yes, of course, of, of putting siding on it. And my dad always said that my grandfather was one of the brothers who was like, "No, not going to do that." And he was he was legit and uh, made his money legitimately. But you know, they were they were an interesting bunch of guys. You know, they would at family reunions they do magic tricks and pull a coin out from under your ear or whatever. Yeah, where was I? Where was I going with? You were you were talking about the pressure that your dad had to make money, and, be, and pa- yeah. partly because coming from a family where that was important, and they were all out selling and and making a living, and didn't yep. understand why he was a musician. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, I think they understood, but the pressure was on, and I, I don't know how overt it was. But yeah, he uh, you know got his degree in economics and taught for a while and went through God knows how many careers selling different things until he found his niche as a as a copywriter in the late 80s and 90s and that was kind of where he stayed but he always played and you know he died just before Alan died actually um, uh, I remember that I'm, yeah that's yeah. hard yeah and so he was with with cancer and a, and a walker going still going to open mic nights and playing a song or two if he could <laughs> If he could muster the energy, so he he loved playing. Amazing. So, yeah, and even took some guitar lessons, you know, at, at 79, and ended up being able to play um, even better than he could before. Wow. But he taught me, you know, uh, basic Travis picking on the guitar when I was like 14, mm -hmm. and so my brother and I picked picked all that up from him, and we had, uh, you know, I've had a couple bands, and my brother was in a a band that toured the states and and Canada for years and uh, was nominated for Juno and they used to pack the bars so yeah we both really really picked that up from him for sure. That's fun. And our family our family Christmases and gatherings would be, you know, my aunt plays too. She's a professional musician and so just amazing campfire nights of of harmonies and. And folk songs. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so you've you've had a lot of wonderful experiences in your life, and you've gotten to travel all over your big and beautiful country and other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. But did you want to share a little bit about your journey towards seeing reality as it is? Yeah. Sure. My parents were, well, my mother, when she came over as a teenager to go to school in Texas, hmm. yeah, I think at like 16 or something, she started working with the Freedom Riders. So she would, you know, go on a bus with, with a black person and, uh, and sit beside them and ride with them. And, uh, so, you know, they were very much leftists. Mm -hmm. And very much for, you know, they were totally anti-racist and totally anti-homophobic. And I remember we we lived in the beaches in Toronto when I was a kid, and that was a, a very much a, or at least it seemed to me a very post '60s kind of community of uh, you know varying degrees of ex hippies, and the streets would just be lined with NDP signs, you know. Um, for anyone that doesn't know that that's in Canadian politics, the uh, New Democratic Party, who are traditionally thought of as left of the liberals and, you know, for the working class. And so I grew up in that kind of environment thinking that, you know, that was kind of the the uh, the ultimate right way to go, you know, and. I remember in the 90s when, I don't know if you remember Bob Ray, anyways, yes. he was a, he, he got to be premier and seemingly immediately got into bed with big business, big surprise. And so that was one of the first sort of 
veins of disillusionment I remember in the family. And I guess I'd always been aware of, you know, having kind of idolized 60s musicians and 60s music and 70s music. From all of that, I, you know, I kind of gleaned that, you know, very basically like war, bad, protest song, good. So I had a, a vague sense that, you know, somehow the military industrial complex, although I don't think many people were calling it that at the time, except in maybe in more radical communities that I wasn't aware of. And it wasn't until 9-11, as with for so many people, that my jaw kind of dropped and I was like, is nobody seeing how obvious this is? And, I, you know, I don't know what part of my character allowed me to see that and not fall for the propaganda. But it was, it, you know, it was a, a bell that you couldn't unring or I couldn't unring. And it was shortly after that that I found Alan and his work and immediately recognized something so grounded and way deeper than any analysis I'd ever heard. So I found him at the right time. Yeah, he became a real a real teacher, I would say. And so that was kind of my progression, you know, from a traditional leftist. Uh, you know, I marched in the first Earth Day and drew cool murals all over tr the streets of Toronto and just, uh, you know, happy-go-lucky. But yeah, I do remember that, that moment of Bob Ray and big business kind of that, that combination where several members of my family, my extended family too, were just so kind of disillusioned by that. I seem to be really the only one until maybe, you know, a couple of years ago, honestly, that have, I don't know, sought a deeper and more complex model of reality than what's offered in the media. So that's been interesting, too, in the family to see a few people sort of getting their antenna higher than they used to be. But uh, I really do have to credit uh, Alan's work with with a huge portion of my, um, my overall awakening. And to this day, I, I, you know, I've listened to endless different podcasts and hosts and thinkers and researchers and scholars and academics and Alan stands still so far above the crowd in so many different ways it's pretty amazing yeah it really is I'm all I am never cease to be am, am, amazed at how profound the the depth and the breadth of his knowledge just floors me still always yeah, I always come back. I always come back to it for a, a good grounding <laughs> and like a, you know, um, a little sort of uh, tap on the shoulder or whatever, just to like a reminder to to not buy in to you know nearly anything really. And you know, it's funny you mentioned the um, you know that you're your own savior. That sentiment, I just said that to my son yesterday, you know, I was trying to explain Hollywood movies and, and, uh, how the, the Pentagon is so intimately involved with so many different action movies. And so I impart 
you know, often little bits of advice that Alan would give to sort of, you know, you can watch them, but always keep a portion of your mind thinking, like, what are they trying to make me think? Or <laughs> how are they trying to to alter my perception in what way, you know? And to not give yourself totally over to it, to be more of an observer. So hopefully, you know, with repeated repetitions of that, that, uh, that idea might be able to, uh, lessen the effect of that very same propaganda. I, I, hopefully, because, you know, it, you can train, you can train yourself to have a guard up so that you are able to see something on different levels simultaneously and you can enjoy it. You can, you know, you can be scared by it or laugh at it or whatever, you know, that feeling is that obviously they're trying to generate, but there is a portion of your brain that has elevated itself up and says, okay, these are the messages that I'm supposed to be getting, you know? It's yeah, it, I think it, I I think I'm there. You know, there's almost nothing that I watch without this kind of question mark floating over my head. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge film fan. You know, I, I I just I love art in whatever form it can come in, except performance art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just never had some uncomfortable experiences in art college with performance art. <laughs> Um, Do you have a list of favorite movies that, for whatever reason, because they, you know, it's got a good message or it tells uh, you a lot about the programming or? Well, I mean, I I would be going over uh, repeated ground that Alan has gone over again and again, I'm sure. One of my, I mean, aside from any programming or what it might be about, I, I find The Exorcist to be one of those movies that just is crafted impeccably. Mm-hmm. Alan, lo- he loved that movie. I must have seen The Exorcist with him a good four or five times. Oh, isn't that funny? It, yeah, yeah. It's an incredible movie. And yeah. the book the book is, I, I mean, I read it in a day. I don't, I, honestly, it barely put it down, like, just to eat. Incredible book as well. Yeah, a lot of the... The old favorites, like The Godfather is another, you don't get a, a movie that rich anymore, you know, even The Palette. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, that has a, a lot to uh, a lot to say about a lot of things. You can read into it in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, I don't know, so many, so many. I took a film analysis course when I was at art college, and I loved this Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn movie, Bringing Up Baby. Oh, yes. It's just like good old-fashioned, silly, kind of feel-good comedy. Yeah. Did you ever see the movie that they were both in called The Philadelphia Story? Yeah, I think I watched that with my dad a long time ago. I'll have to revisit. Oh, you, you'll, you'll have to revisit that because the, the dialogue is just... It's excellent. Now, if you're watching it with the let's pay attention to programming, then there are a lot of messages in there. You're, you've got feminism and we'll just call it the flexibility of relationships, you know. The, right. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. you know so there's definitely um, 
plenty of messages to beware of there, but it was certainly good writing. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll revisit that for sure. And then, you know, there's movies that Alan pointed out, like Gattaca. Mm-hmm. Or the... the the John Hurt um, 1984 version I thought was excellent. Not surprisingly, that's a book I've read again and again. Yeah. Um, yeah, that version of the movie is really quite good, too. The book is excellent. That uh, Brave New World and 1984, that's just required reading and viewing. You've, yeah, you yeah, must yeah. see, must read, must see. And Animal Farm, too. Animal Farm is great. The book, you can read the book in an hour or an hour and a half. And yeah, there's, I read it, yeah. read it out loud to the children, like, last year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's, so there's no, even people who don't like to read, there's no excuse not to read that one. It's a very slim little volume, and it he it's he didn't have an extra word in there. It's quite lean and mean. Yeah, yeah, it just flies along. It's so well written. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't think of any movie in particular that uh, that stands out and just not in my head at the moment. One thing that that uh, you know how Alan used to say, "Oh, there's so many different ways. There's a thousand ways that culture could have gone or society could have gone, but you're not supposed to know that. You're not supposed to think about that." Yeah, didn't Lenin say that? Yes. And he would quote that regularly. Yep. One of the greatest hits, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I, I think it's the same thing with with movies. You know, he said when the film industry, whether it's Hollywood or a British film or a foreign, you know, German film, whatever, when they want to, they can really put out something with amazing lofty values that's moral that makes you feel good or makes you think just unfortunately they really don't want to do that no no it's um you know we have family movie night and i try and you know there are certain movies that the kids just want to see the children just want to see i hate saying kids it comes up but <laughs> again another thing that alan said often is you know the uh psycholinguistics of words like kid, baby goat. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, um, I try and show some older movies to get them out of the, that high, high editing rate, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that fast paced, you know, adrenaline pumping kind of short attention span kind of movie into older movies from the fifties and sixties. And it's amazing, you know, like playing Chitty Chitty Bang Bang for them or something. Oh, love that. <laughs> yeah, just laughing. Alan loved that movie, too. <laughs> That's great. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Have you ever seen The Secret of Rowan Inish? Oh, my children love that movie. See, that would be one that Al- Alan and I watched that together a few times, and that would that was one I remember him saying after we watched that. You see, when they want to they can turn out a beautiful movie. Yeah, it's, it can happen. And again, I, I forget a lot of the titles, but during art college, you know, there was this reel with some friends of mine and I, um, there was something called like the art house circuit in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And in, I guess, most big cities. And you could, 
you could go to a few theaters that would either play old movies or, you know, European kind of art house cinema. And the contrast is so huge between some 90s Hollywood blockbuster and some 90s small European art house movie. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's it's harder to see them now, though, with the uh, the conglomerations that we get. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, you can turn on the television if you happen to have access to, you know, 500 channels, and you'll have trouble finding something that you want to watch. Yeah. <laughs> My wife and I were, like I, like I, I told you about, we were in New York couple weeks ago for five days and we don't have tv we just watch we get something from the internet or you know a dvd or whatever so we don't my children don't see commercials ah. and i Good. haven't years i haven't had tv for 20 years in any any place i've lived and so in the hotel room in new york it was just it, it's like Anytime I'm in a hotel, you know, you sort of flake out and turn the TV on and start flicking channels. And if you do find something that you're enjoying, it's not more than a few minutes before there's, you know, five or seven minutes of commercials. Mm-hmm. And, and the commercials can... nowadays are highly weaponized. Oh, and mostly pharmaceutical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My wife and I were laughing. Every, every commercial would end with, may cause death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you may bleed from your eyeballs and your toes may explode. And but, or, or irritable bowel syndrome, you know. Yeah. Ah. You know, are you not sleeping? Why don't you try this and experience this huge range of side effects that may yeah. <laughs> But then they show people walking through a flowery field at the end, holding hands with their children. and like, Oh, so it's all good. Try a Vitra or whatever. <laughs> So well, that, yeah, that was amazing. You know, not having seen commercials in a long time, it was pretty jaw-dropping. That's funny. We should save a little bit of time because I'll plug in music that you sent. and, and But I before we wrap it up, because believe it or not, we've been going over an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, if there are... I just want to give you the opportunity to talk about something that you want that you started the conversation with the burning desire to say and you haven't said it yet. Um well it's funny, you know, in the knowing that we were gonna do this talk I made a whole bunch of notes and I haven't even looked at them. <laughs> um but one thing that's written um in the biggest lettering of all is with an exclamation point is Alan's Christmas songs. Mm. And so for anybody who's listening um, and hasn't heard, well, I should explain, or you can, um, you know, Alan used to do on Christmas, he would get out his classical guitar and just freestyle a composition. He was, he was improvising, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He and was. they're just, you know, my wife and I, for years, every Christmas when, uh, you know, since we've had children, when the children are in bed and we're alone, get the laptop and lie in bed, and um, we would just quietly listen to 
to his musical offering. And, um, yeah, they were really moving and a real, a real gift. Like it, that was the sense I got that he was really trying to give you something in that, you know? Yes, it, he he loved to do that, and I I think maybe improvising is not the best word because he might get if he had time he might get the guitar out a day or two or three before Christmas and just pluck at it you know pick at it, but I would never hear that melody that ultimately got recorded on Christmas Day. Then he was just warming up, mm. and then then he would play it and record it. And I'd say, oh, my goodness. And he said, well, that has been in my head. <laughs> so I, I think more than improvising, he actually had the full melody pretty much start to finish in his head. Because right. once he put it down on Christmas Day, he could play it again note for note the next day or a year later. And yeah. one other thing I'll say, too, about his Christmas compositions is that... Um, one year he recorded something, I don't remember which one off the top of my head, but I said, oh, that sounds like, and I referenced back another song. And he said, yeah, I've got a theme in my head. And I said, for three years? (laughs) (laughs) But he did. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, the the apparent, uh, or his mastery of the guitar fretboard was apparent in those compositions because I I played one once for a, a classically trained friend of mine mm-hmm. um, who went to music school and you know teaches music and everything and I said you know just listen to this and tell me what you think and he was blown away mm. by the you know as much by the the playing as by the emotion that was actually contained in it you know yeah. it's it's hard to project um emotion um you know i'm a very basic musician i just i don't know any theory um i just sort of write three chord kind of pop songs but uh yeah i just always really admired those and and enjoyed them and still do i've gone back and listened to them several times oh that's neat
I'm just very grateful to have to found to have found Alan's uh, work, and um, I supported him through the years. Bought several of the books and handed them out, and uh, and I'm about due to order another one. I think so. Great. Well, I thank you for taking the time and doing this, and I've had a fun time recording this with you. And I think because I, too, took a pile of notes, you've got a pile of notes, and what that tells me is that we will do this again, and next time we'll be all warmed up and we can go to our stack of notes. (laughs) I'd love to do that. It's a real pleasure talking to you. Great. Thank you. Thank you for your time. and and your insights and your life, um, really and, interesting. Well, I'd, I'd also like to thank you for, you know, being invisibly behind the scenes for so long and um, for, you know, keeping up what you're doing. I've really enjoyed um, listening to the interviews you've done, and I love that you're putting up um, images to the videos, Um I assume some of the books that you show are from Alan's collection, and I love seeing that. Um, so anyways, you're doing an amazing job, and I'm just grateful you're you're still doing it. Well, it, it, to me, you know, Alan would say it's a must-be, and that's how I feel about this. It's a must-be. His work, his work was life-changing for me, and being with him was profoundly life-changing, and I, I feel that that was a gift for which I am eternally grateful. And yeah. yeah, well, me too. And though I never actually spoke to him, I, you know, I definitely considered him a teacher, but, uh, you know, he was a friend I never met. Mm-hmm. A lot of people feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- oh. thank you. Thanks to the listeners for sharing another chunk of time with me and, and David. And I will be back next week. And I will just mention that next week I have already arranged to be speaking again with Darren from South Africa. And we have a specific topic, which I shall leave as a surprise. But we're going to cover something from South Africa in quite a bit of depth. So that will be June the 22nd, and I will look forward to that. Thank you. I look forward to it, too. Thank you. All right. Take care, and good night, everybody. Well, I've got something that the world didn't know.